0: Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do there Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night.
1: They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to Episode 3 of 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and find out why that film is so highly regarded and whether or not it deserves the mantle of Best Picture. This time around, we are looking at All Quiet on the Western Front. Now, in Episode 1, we introduced Trey Hooks as a guest host for the first two episodes of the podcast. and talked about how we'd have rotating hosts from then on. I thought it went well. Apparently, Trey thought it went well because he has agreed to be the permanent co-host of the series. So, welcome back, Trey. Thank you, Blaine. Great to be back. Now, this is not saying we'll never have a third voice coming in here and there. For the occasional film. We may still have guest stars, but yeah, you can expect Trey and I to be here through all 99 years worth of films, and who knows, if we're liking it, there may be annual podcast edition after that going through the new winners. We'll see what, what happens. Sounds great. All right, so this time around we're looking at the original All Quiet on the Western Front, not the... 1979 adaptation. I'm not sure if you'd call it a remake. I'm always hesitant with that when it's based on a novel. Right. Is it truly a remake, or is it just another adaptation? Some of it depends on how they're doing it, and sometimes they're a mix. If you get something like the 1990s edition of The Island of Dr. Moreau, which has some elements from the novel that the first adaptation left out, and some elements borrowed from that first adaptation, so it's not really clear which source material it is more than the other. But in any event, the basic data on All Quiet on the Western Front, it was released on August 24th, 1930, directed by Lewis Milestone. The writing credits are shared. We've got Eric Maria Remarque, who wrote the novel it's based on, Maxwell Anderson is credited with adaptation and dialogue. George Abbott with the screenplay. Del Andrews is also on the adaptation credits. Sea Gardner Sullivan has supervising story chief credit. Now, this was the era when not all theaters supported synchronized sound yet. So there is a silent version with intertitles, in which case Walter Anthony has the credit for writing those intertitles. And Lewis Milestone, the director, was an uncredited contributor to the script. We also have stars Louis Walheim, Lou Ayers, John Ray, Arnold Lucy, Ben Alexander. It really is an ensemble cast, for reasons that are probably more clear if we go through a bit of a plot summary. So this is actually one of the longer early films as well. It's about two and a half hours. And I'd say the first 45 minutes to an hour start with a class of high school students during World War I, whose teacher gets them hyped up and pumped and rallied and ready to go out and fight the good fight. Now, one of the interesting choices that was made, starting with the original novel, written by a French individual, is that this is written from the perspective of German soldiers. So all this rah-rah rallying from this American film is from the side that we were fighting against in the First World War, or the Great War as it was known then. I mean, this is 1930. There was no World War II yet. There were tensions. You might have been able to predict the Second World War. But anyway, as they get out there and start fighting, they realize it's not this fun, glorified experience that they were sold on. and. One of the things I like about it, there's a scene where one of the guys is going, why are we even fighting? Do we know what started this? Who said what? How did this all begin? It What starts off seemingly as a, you know, rah-rah look at the honor of the soldiers rapidly turns into a pretty effective anti-war film. And spoilers, we talked about how in Wings not all the characters survive and how realistic that is. In this one, we start watching that class of students as they go into the military. None of them make it through the film alive. And I think that in itself is a big part of why it's so effective, especially the way some of them die. And some of the specific events are... They're based on true events to a degree. Lewis Milestone consulted with a lot of German vets from World War I and translated some of their experiences.
0: What I loved about the way that Lewis Milestone set this up, though, was, at least for me, until the final scene, I was not cognizant that literally every member of the class had died. And I think some of that's because some of it's told to you anecdotally instead of visually represented. But the ending had a greater impact for me mm-hmm. because that was at the moment that it sunk in. None of these boys made it out alive. Yeah. That
1: final sequence is the only scene I had actually heard about from this film coming in. One of the soldiers, we learn probably about two-thirds of the way through the film, had a butterfly collection. And that was a big part of his childhood when he goes home on shore leave and visits We see the butterflies hanging on the wall. And the last shot is his hand reaching for another specimen, of butterfly. We only see his hand in frame. We hear a gunshot, the hand jerks, and goes limp. And that's it. So he's not protecting some town from invasion. He's not taking out scores of enemies. It's not some big heroic death. It's an ultimately pointless death. I think that's what part of what makes this so effective is that some, many of the deaths seem so ineffective. And that's tough because we're talking about an era halfway between two world wars. So the tension is there. There's still, you know, a lot of the government propaganda is trying to say, Hey, you know, we should respect our soldiers and honor them and how great this was. And, you know, wouldn't you like to be one of these honored next time if we have to? And then we get this movie. I, I, Wonder if the choice to make it about the Germans was there specifically to show how ugly war can be and to distance it. So you can always claim, oh, we're not showing negativity on the American side, we're showing it on the German side or French versus German.
0: I think it was. I've never read the novel that the film was based on, but I can't recollect. Seeing an American in the film at all, uh, the two times you see the two times you see the enemy, I believe they're British and French yeah,
1: it was all entirely a European cast of characters that that I recall as well, yeah, and it was typically the French civilians, so with a French author, I wonder if that's what that if part of that was keeping the distance so he was not reflecting a negative light. On the French military. And it's not entirely negative or entirely positive. Germany banned the film because they felt it was too negative a look at the German military, whereas Poland banned the film because they thought it looked too favorably on the German military. So for quite a few years, it was something of a challenge to see it in Europe, although transportation between European countries is fairly easy, so a lot of Germans saw the original run just by, you know, crossing the border and watching it in Italy or whatnot. I guess not Italy, because that banded even longer than the other two, but
0: Well, and I would argue that it's not necessarily anti-military. The the theme that I got from it was war is hell and no one understands that hell except for the individuals that are in the thick of it fighting.
1: Yeah, very much so. Because it's everyone back home is like, oh, it's so good. We're so, you know, they are treating these guys like heroes, but they're coming back just, you know, the whole attitude is, you don't get it, and the words don't exist for me to explain it to you. Like They just, especially in the short leave scene. He just couldn't articulate it, but he's like, okay, he doesn't want to insult the way they're treating him, But it's like, yeah, it doesn't, I don't feel like the person you're treating me as.
0: Especially when he returns back to the classroom. Yeah. (laughs) And the same professor is giving the same rhetoric and he tries to tell these boys it's not all thunder and glory. And the, the professor tries to play it off as one part you're a coward, one part You've got trauma. You, there's something wrong with you that you don't agree that this was a great honor.
1: Yeah, it's, at the time, they, I guess they called it shell shock. Now we have a much better understanding of PTSD. But I mean, at a fundamental level, if you are serving in the military for the right reasons, then some of the things soldiers have to do to do their jobs properly are going to bother you. So that's. I. Maybe I should lay this clear, because I'm sure we're going to be talking about war movies again in the future, although not for a while. I completely support, respect, and thank the individuals who choose to serve and put their lives on the line, whether I agree with their deployment orders or not.
0: I I agree with that. And like I stated earlier, I, I would not want anybody to walk away thinking that this film is disrespectful to soldiers i i don't think it is i just think it portrays a warts and all view of what they had to go through in this particular war you, you see what it's you see a representation of what it might have been like to rush an opposing foxhole to be in a trench when it's being pounded not knowing if you're going to get buried alive, but knowing you can't go out because of the bursting shells all around you, the threat of amputation from infection from a wound that couldn't properly get treated it's all of that's in this film
1: yeah, this film feels to me i mean the narrative structure is pretty weak like it it ends when the last character dies, really right it, there's not a huge amount of story structure to it this really feels like a world war 1 vet who was almost using it as a a, a therapy mm-hmm. just write the experiences down and put something together to try to make some coherent sense of it and ultimately that's what i found is it's hard to make sense of this because so much of what happens feels like it's senseless it's you know i'm not saying never go to war like there are aggressors right yeah if your country gets invaded you have every right to fight back and you should i'm just saying yeah you you see something like this if if more people who are making the decisions about whether or not to go to war had been through war like this i think there would have been a greater effort to find a peaceful solution over the negotiating table than what some of them did not necessarily perfect i mean Hitler fought in the trenches in World War One. And yet he was a major instigator of World War Two.
0: Two of my favorite characters in this, one positive, one negative. First would be was it Himmelstoss or Hit Himmelstoss, the postman who becomes the drill sergeant?
1: Yes. Yeah. Played by John Ray.
0: Just because he was the example of the small-minded person who, once given a little bit of authority, abuses it. He does everything he can to humiliate these boys during their training. Mm -hmm. But then the role is reversed because they get to the front lines before he does. They learn what war is really like before he does. And when he's finally deployed, he can't handle it.
1: Yeah. It really does show what can happen here. So you mentioned that you had two characters that you really enjoyed.
0: What was the other one? Kaczynski. Uh or or Kat. Paul's mentor during the war.
1: Yeah, he was he was a good one. And they had I mean, he he was the mentor, not just to Paul, but to a lot of people, a lot of characters. He's the one that said, no, like, you follow my lead, you duck when I duck, I will keep you alive. And I think that says a lot. If you look at the people who survived and who made it through, those are the guys whose goal was stay alive. Right. The guys whose goal is, I'm going to take out the enemy and win this war single-handed, didn't last. Very long at all. It's much less time on average.
0: And and I think at least what we're presented in the film, I think when Cat dies, that's what finally breaks Paul. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Especially
1: some of the circumstances. (laughs) You know, when he's carrying him in on his shoulders, he's like, no, no, he's just asleep. And they're like, "Uh, no, no, he's not. Yeah, because he, he took a... It was a flesh wound, or Paul was bringing county into the medics, and then he took another wound that was not a
0: flesh wound on the way. When I was reading about the film, I've never seen it. Evidently, the book had a sequel, and they actually filmed an adaptation of a sequel as well. And I believe uh, there is a character, Chioden, or Chioden, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce the character's name. He's played by Slim Somerville, who I knew as a song and dance man who sometimes co-starred with Shirley Temple, but his character, I think, is the link between, both in the book and in the film, between this film and the sequel, which supposedly focuses more on the men returning home from the war and their difficulty reintegrating. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that would be The Road Back from 1937. At least the film was 1937, I'm not sure about the novel. But yeah, Slim Somerville is in that film as well, playing the same character who I also don't pretend I can pronounce. That sequel apparently was directed by James Whale, who hmm. I mostly know for directing
0: Frankenstein. I hesitate to call the film a sequel. I know the book was a sequel. Whether it, you know, it kind of goes to what you said earlier. When there's a series of works and you adapt both works, do you call the film a sequel to the film? Yeah. I mean, looking at this,
1: it's still, yeah, it is the same writer. It is treated as a sequel when it's got some of the same production okay. cast and, like, that one star. So I would say it's as much a sequel as, you know, Harry Potter's 2 through 8. So.
0: Also worth mentioning in the cast, Beryl Mercer, who played Paul's mother. We will see her again in a couple of episodes. She has a supporting role in Cavalcade.
1: Okay. Yeah, so I believe that'll be episode six, if I'm remembering the order correctly.
0: hmm
1: Okay, yeah, so I think that's about it. I mean, we can go through the, the cast and crew. At the very least, though, I feel we should call out Arthur Edison for the cinematography. Yes. yes. On All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, now, Carl Freund is also uncredited in the cinematography. With movies this old, they weren't working directly with the unions to make sure that the information was accurate the i m d b now you know they'll get their writing and directors and acting credits straight from the unions, so it's only non union players that they need to worry about or uncredited people where they have to do a little bit of work at this point. A lot of it was user submission as as some people know. the internet movie database started as a collection <laughs> of Usenet posts in the nineteen eighties but I figure they should be called out because all quiet on the Western Front, it was actually nominated for four Oscars. It won Best Picture and Best Director for Lewis Milestone. It was nominated for Best Writing and for Best Cinematography. And I can see that the cinematography in this is actually quite good. It, it just the choice of camera angles, you know, the slightly low angles when you're seeing like the school teacher going rah-rah. And pumping. It just there's effective use of the camera angles to have the camera looking slightly down when people are feeling slightly down, but slightly up when they're pumping and you know trying to get things going. There's actually a fair amount of deep focus in this, which is very challenging to do. You know, C- Citizen Kane is generally considered the first major deep focus film because there were things really in the foreground and background whereas here they just managed to compose the shot so that everything of interest is in the background to keep it all in focus at once right? if you had something very up close to the camera during those shots it would have been totally
0: blurred and out of focus it's a beautifully shot film and it I watched it I felt like I had fallen into a world war 1 rut because I had watched Wings, I had watched this, I had seen Hell's Angels, but this this blew me away. It's beautifully shot, and I I love this movie. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's not
0: it's not a feel good film. No,
1: but it's an incredibly well made film. So, as we said, one of the things that we want to look at is whether or not we feel that this deserves the Best Picture nomination. Now, for the first six years of the Academy Awards, they did it by season and split things in the middle of the year. So for those six episodes, we're only going to be comparing movies to the other nominees from that time period. Once we get to year seven, then we'll look at all movies released that were eligible and how they're viewed by IMDb users and Letterboxd users maybe doing some talk of Rotten Tomatoes as well. In the case of Quiet on the Western Front, the IMDb user score it's got now is 8.1 out of 10, which is very respectable. So just for context, mm-hmm. the IMDb top 250, it uses Bayesian scoring. So the, the scores are a little bit different as viewed on the top 250, where they're compared to the average score on that report. Than they are on the individual film pages. So, All Quiet on the Western Front doesn't actually make the top two hundred and fifty. But when you adjust the scores for the top two hundred and fifty, the lowest score on it is eight point oh. Right. So it can't be that far off the bottom of the list. So it's not just, you know, voted the best of that year. In that year, it's voted as one of the best in all years. Now, Letterboxd is one that. I'm actually really starting to lean more towards in terms of, you know, scores and views for movies. It's the letterboxd averages because of the populace seem to be skewed a little more towards the the professional critic art house kind of side. Okay. That gave it a 4.0 out of 10 or out of 5. Right. So letterboxd scores out of 5, which again is very respectable. Now, Rotten Tomatoes, I... I don't know how you feel, but I personally have some issues with it because you have to read the fine print to see the average score for the critics that they're coming up with. What they actually report is consensus. Okay. So the tomato meter percentages are the percentage of reviewers who rate it above six out of 10 when they convert it. So of these six critics who they found reviews for, for Al Quiet on the Western Front, 100% said, You know this is a worthwhile movie, so it's got a tomato meter score of 100%. Even though the average score by those six critics is only seven out of ten, the Rotten Tomatoes audience scores are 89%. So these are respectable percentages and scores on all sites across the board. If we compare that to the other four nominees for the year, uh, The Big House got an IMDb score of 7.2 out of 10. Letterboxd of 3.3 out of 10. Rotten Tomato Critics score is 83%. And the audience scores are 71%. The next one is The Love Parade. IMDb is 7.2. And again, these are compared to 8.1 for All Quiet. Letterboxd is 3.4 compared to 4.0. Critics are also 100%. Audiences are only 77%. The Divorcee. out of 10 on IMDb, 3.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd, 75% of critics, 64% of audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. The last nominee is Disraeli, which is 6.4 out of 10 on the IMDb, 2.8 on Letterboxd, and then 80 and 40% for critics and audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So looking at what I think are probably the three major sort of social media film reviewing sites, the consensus what, eighty-seven years later, is that at least of these five, the Academy made the right choice.
0: I haven't seen the other four nominees, so I have to crouch my statement in those terms. However, I I saw this for the first time for the podcast. I was blown away by it. So I I have no problem with the Academy's been here.
1: Yeah, similarly, this is the only one of the five I've seen. So I I can't say what I would have picked as number one, but I will say this sets the bar pretty high. But anything that did eventually beat it would have to be phenomenal. So yeah, again, I'm Yeah, I've got no issues with them here. Those issues come later. <laughs> there are some later years where I will definitely be going, What were you thinking?
0: Something we also like to talk about is how we would recommend this for other audiences. In my perspective, I've got a seven-year-old son and a ten-year-old daughter. I I would actually let my daughter see this if we had a discussion beforehand. It is a pre-code film. But there's only one scene that I found to be graphically violent, and the message here is so strong and so important that, that I do think it's appropriate for perhaps more mature young audiences if you have the right discussion with them.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. the The violence is graphic but it's not out of place for that scene in the war film. You know, it's not like right. opening sequence and saving Private Ryan, right? It doesn't quite hit that level, but, you know, one of the experiences from those German vets that was actually depicted in the film was, you know, a uh, guy's climbing up barbed wire, there's an explosion. His forearms and hands are still attached to the barbed wire, but the rest of him is just gone.
0: And that's the exact scene that I
1: was thinking about. The only other thing, at least from a parent perspective, that you may need to be aware of, later in the film, there's German soldiers on one side of a river who are actually swimming in it, and a couple of French ladies walk by on the other side. When some of the men dive, it becomes clear that they're skinny dipping, because there are some naked rear ends just barely popping out of the water. So it's, it's similar to wings. It's very quick, very subtle. So it's yeah, I would certainly agree. If you back it up with a conversation, I would I would think most teens it wouldn't be an issue. If anything, it might help to put things in perspective, right? To so that they see that yes, there is an ugly side to war, and it's not all glory because it's not always depicted that way in media. Uh, maybe as a trigger warning, we should also mention that some of the vets at the time this came out, there's reports of a lot of World War One veterans who couldn't watch it till the end because it felt like they were reliving those experiences, and it was very difficult to watch, and they they just had to walk away. So if if you may experience something similar. Keep that in mind before choosing to view it. So, I don't know, did you have any closing thoughts on the film, or...?
0: Just to repeat, if you haven't seen this film, seek it out. At the point we're recording this, we're in the afterglow of the year of Wonder Woman, which, of course, was set in World War I. If you'd like to see another great film with a completely different slant but set in the same historical era, I'd highly recommend All Quiet on the Western Front.
1: Yeah, and this one definitely will depict the warfare end much more accurately. Cuz let's face it, accuracy is not your goal when you're talking about a Greek goddess who may or may not have been formed out of clay. So, as fantastic as Wonder Woman is, probably one of the the top 3 DC superhero films, if not top three superhero films, period. Yeah, it's it's not what you want to watch if you want to see an accurate depiction of World War I. But yeah, same thing, if you have any interest in war films, you will want to check this out. By and large, war films and westerns are the two genres I have the least interest in, but this was still a good war film. This held my attention for two and a half hours, which, like I said, just with my own biases coming in, that is saying quite a bit. So, from there, we're ready for next time, which hits the other genre (laughs) (laughs) that I'm not a huge fan of. So, the fourth annual ceremonies award of outstanding production went to Cimarron, which was also. Remade a few decades later, so we are looking at the 1931 Cimarron. So, join us again next month for that one. And finally, thank you for listening. My mom always said,
0: life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I want some more.